0: 58. Can everybody hear me? Okay, this is the third of four psalms that deal with David being chased by King Saul. Uh, David uh, is a hero in the land of Israel. He is God's, quote, anointed king. God told the prophet Samuel to go out and anoint this kid, the son of Jesse, for to be the future king. But... Israel wanted King Saul. And Saul is jealous of this young man named David. And he's a little crazy. <clears throat> and he's decided to kill this young rival. And he's been chasing him. And if you look in Psalm 58 at the superscription, you see that it's to the chief musicians. This is a, these are words that are going to be put to music. It's going to be set to... Do Not Destroy, that's either the tune or the title of the psalm or the song, and it is a reflection that David writes about an experience in his life. And <clears throat> that title, Do Not Destroy, uh, gives the readers who read the psalm for the first time instructions And it gives us instructions how to handle difficult times and enemies of ours. We should not seek vengeance against our enemies. We're not out to destroy them. We should turn them over to God because vengeance is the Lord's. And uh, we should let God handle them. And so these are instructions for us as well. Now one commentator said that this psalm is aimed at Abner. Abner is the first cousin of King Saul. He's his advisor, and he is the leader of King Saul's army. And the theory is that this guy, Abner, has floated rumors about King David. He's got his cousin, King Saul, in in an uproar, and has suggested that Saul go after David. We're not sure whether that's the case or not, but I want to show you where Abner is mentioned uh, in the Bible, and uh, see if this could form the background for the psalm. First mentioned in 1 Samuel chapter 14. Now we're going to look at three verses here, three passages, very quickly. 1 Samuel 14. And look at verse 50. 1 Samuel verse 14. And verse 50. So we're looking at this guy named Abner. And it says, 1 Samuel 14, 50, The name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, the daughter of Ahimaaz. And the name of the commander of his army was Abner, son of Ner, Saul's uncle. So Ner is Saul's uncle, Abner is his first cousin. So this is a family affair. Okay, So that's the first time he's mentioned. Second time is in chapter 20 at 1 Samuel. So look over at chapter 20. And we won't read a lot of verses here, but we will look at one verse. And when you get there, look at verse 25. 1 Samuel 20, verse 25. And this will give you some idea what's going on. Now the king sat on his seat that's King Saul as at other times on a seat by the wall and Jonathan that's Saul's son arose and Abner sat by Saul's side but David's place was empty David's on the run and guess who's sitting at King Saul's right hand good old cousin Abner this is a man who influences the king. Now look over at chapter 26. Chapter 26. <clears throat> now we have a lot of names here. We're going to see how many I can butcher as we read through this. But I looked them up and I think I can get them get them close enough. Okay, so we're going to look at chapter 26 in verse 1. Now the Ziphites came to Saul at Gavia, Gibeah, at Gibeah, Saying, is David not hid in the hall of Hishilah, opposite of Jeshimon? Then Saul arose, and he went down to the wilderness of Ziph, having three thousand chosen men of Israel with him, to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. So he's going after David. And Saul encamped in the hill of Achilah, which is opposite of Jeshimon. By the road. But David stayed in the wilderness. And he saw that Saul came after him in the wilderness. And David therefore sent out spies and understood that Saul had indeed come. Yes, that's him. He's after you. So Saul, David arose and he came to the place where Saul had encamped. And David saw the place where Saul lay. And Abner, look, well, there's Abner, Abner the son of Ner, the commander of the army. Now Saul lay within the camp with the people encamped all around him, the 3,000. Then David answered and said to Abimelech, the Hittite, and to Abishai, the son of Zariah, brother of Joab, saying, Who will go down with me to Saul? Look, I'm going to go down there, Saul, in the camp. Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai came to the people by night, and there Saul lay sleeping within the camp. And his spear stuck into the ground by his head. And Abner and all the people lay around him. And Abishai said to David, God has delivered your enemy into your hand. Look, he's sleeping. This is our opportunity. Now therefore, please, let me strike him at once with the spear. Right in the earth. And I will not have to strike him a second time. But David said to Abishai, look at this. Do not Destroyed. Have you ever seen that before? Yeah, we saw that back in Psalm 56. These are the instructions in Psalm 56. Do not destroy him, for who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? David said, furthermore, as the Lord lives, the Lord shall strike him, or his day shall come to die, or he shall go out in the battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed, But please, take now the spear and the jug of water that are by his head. And let's go. Take his water and take that spear and let's get out of here. (laughs) That's what he said. So David, verse 12, took the spear and the jug of water by Saul's head and they got away. And no man saw or knew it or awoke. For they were all asleep because of a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. Now David went over to the other side, way beyond the other side of the camp. And he stood on top of the hill, far off a great distance between them. And David called out to the people and to Abner. Notice how it's not just to the people and to Abner. There's this emphasis on this guy Abner who must be involved in influencing Saul, the son of Ner. And he says, Do you not answer, Abner? Do you not answer, Abner? Why are you keeping quiet? Why aren't you coming after me? See, so, you know, all these kinds of things. He's He's, he's taunting Abner. And who is like you in Israel? And the answer would be no one. He's the, Saul's right hand man. Why have you then not guarded your Lord, the king? And, for, and one for the people came in to destroy the Lord, your king. And he didn't do it. Now the rest of this, the story goes on, but I just wanted to lay this out to you. So here's the theory. Okay? So if you go back to Psalm 58, here's the theory. The theory is that this psalm is addressed to Abner and others of his advisors who are sort of leading Saul in the wrong direction and trying to get him to chase after David. Now, we don't know if that's the case or not, but we do see some elements there that are going to be related to what we see here. The other option is that David's speaking to the judges of the people, and um, Israel has judges who try cases, and they are allowing evil to reign, and they're not doing anything about it. They're just keeping quiet. So those are our two options: either it's Abner or the judges. So I wanted to give you that background. So let's look at Psalm 58. And first of all, we're going to see an accusation in verse one. And here it is: Do not indeed speak. Do you indeed speak righteousness? Look at that. Do you indeed speak righteousness? You silent ones, do you judge uprightly, you sons of men? Now, immediately, two words jump right off of that verse. Notice the word speak and the word silent. You see that? Speak and silent. Now, read that again. Do you indeed speak righteousness, you silent ones? Now, how can somebody who's silent speak You see that? Usually if you're silent, you're speechless. But here, the silent ones are speaking. How can you speak when you're silent? See, that's the irony. They're speaking by remaining silent. When you should raise your voice and say something, and you remain silent, your actions speak louder than your words. When you should be standing up against evil and Unrighteousness, and you don't, you side with evil and unrighteousness. You are speaking very loudly. And that's what I think David is saying here. These are a group of people. It's either Abner and his friends or the judges. And when they should be speaking against unrighteousness, they don't. So they are speaking, therefore, for unrighteousness by their silence. Now, lawyers can tell you a little bit about when people are silent. They often are complicit. In, in the affair. How many times when you should have spoken up, and I should say we should have spoken up, talking to someone this morning, how many times should have you, when you should have spoken up against evil or unrighteousness, you remain silent? When you think the last time when you should have said something and you didn't, and by not saying anything, guess what you did in essence? You, in a sense, approved by your silence, what's going on? And then look at verse 2. So he, there's a question. You see, there's a question mark after verse 1. Do you speak, indeed speak righteousness, you silent ones? You judge unrightly? You sons of men, by not saying anything, you're not judging rightly? Now look, here's the answer in verse 2. Know in your heart you work wickedness. You weigh out the violence of your hands and the earth. Now we have two statements here, and I want you to notice them. I'm reading out of a New King James Bible, and I'm—if you have a different translation, it may read a little differently. But just listen to the two statements that are mentioned in verse two. Number one, verse two: "You work." Do you see that? That's a sentence. "You work," and then the second sentence is "You weigh," or "You met out." Okay. Your work and your way. Okay? What do you work? Look what it says. You work wickedness. To work means effort. You take make an effort to be wicked. Okay? You work. What do you work? Wickedness. That's the nature of the work. The nature of the work your work is evil. Who's he speaking to? Those people in verse 1. Okay? Notice the location of the work. In your heart. You see that? In your heart you work wickedness. It's an inner thing. It's, it emanates from the heart. Okay? Now look at the second sentence. You weigh. You weigh or you met out what? You met out violence. See? That's the nature of the wickedness. The wickedness is manifest through violence of your hands. Notice the first sentence, verse two, heart. Second, hands. Do you see that? In your heart, you work wickedness. You met out violence with your hands. You have an outward manifestation of the wickedness, which is violence. Okay, and you do it in the earth. So one thing you're doing in your heart, the other one you're doing out there where you live. And this is probably describing the way that King Saul and Abner and the others are treating David and the rest of the nation of Israel. So the fact that they work it out in its effort, this is premeditated. This just something that's done off the top of the head. So now what we have in verse 3 is David speaks to his audience. Notice in verses 1 he's speaking to the people who are doing the wicked thing. But beginning in verse 2, he speaks to his audience. Speaking to us about those wicked people. And he describes them. Look what he says in verse 3. The wicked are estranged. Look at that. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They're alienated. Meaning they're alienated from God. From the point of birth. This is what they are. They are estranged. Estranged from when? From the womb. Even before their birth. This is their nature. We are sinners by nature. We are estranged from God. We're born with our backs toward God. That's why we need to be converted. We need to turn around. We need to repent. Because we're born with our backs toward God. So they have a congenital problem. This is in their DNA. They're wicked to the core just by being born. Now look at the second thing in verse 3. They go astray as soon as they're born. Now, they are wicked. The wicked are estranged, beginning of verse 3. This is what they are. That's what they are. Next sentence in verse 3, they go astray. That's what they do. What they do follows what they are. They're estranged, and guess what they do? They go astray. When do they go astray? As soon as they're born. The very first steps that a baby takes is away from the Lord. It's an amazing thing. And then, how do they go astray? Look what he says at the end of verse 3. Speaking what? Lies. Speaking lies. Lies. Now, in verse 1, they're silent. But they're speaking, aren't they? So, they speak lies. They speak lies in their heart. And they think evil thoughts. And they verbally speak lies. It's an amazing thing. From When do they speak the lies? As soon as they start going astray, they start speaking lies. This is why uh, you know that we're sinners by birth. We're sinners by nature. I tell this in my class all the time, I've probably mentioned it here, but it's an amazing thing. You can take a little child, just a few months old, 12 months old, or 13 months old, it can't speak. But it understands what you're saying. You say, did you take your brother's toy? The little, no, he did. Did you take your brother's toy? And he'll go. (laughs) He can't speak, but he can lie. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? Now, no one's taught him how to lie. So, we're sinners by birth. We're sinners by nature. And these lies that are being told by these people through being passive and aggressive are aimed at David. And their weapons are their lies. So, remember that. Their weapons are their lies. Now, look at verse 4. Their poison is like the poison of a serpent. Notice that their lies are venomous. Their lies are deadly. Lies can destroy. So he likens the lies to poison from a serpent. Look at this at the end of verse 4. They are like the deaf cobra that stops its ears. Some translations say adder. but Probably a cobra is a better translation. They're like the deaf cobra that stops its ears, which will not heed the voice of charmer, charming ever so skillfully. So what are these liars like? These liars are like a king cobra who doesn't follow the orders of its master, the charmer who's trying to charm it and get it to come out of the basket and go down in the basket. It's closed its ears to the instructions of the master. And these people are like that. They've got a master God, and guess what they've done? They've closed their ears to God. They're self-willed. All they want to do is what they want to do. They're going to lie, and they're going to try to spit out their venom and hit David and kill him with their venomous tongues. So there's an analogy to what they're trying to do. These are self-willed people who are going to strike out with their tongues against David. And this could certainly be Abner or the judges or whoever. So now we have David's prayer. And this is usually considered the hub of the psalm because this is the request David makes to God. So he's talked to the people themselves in verses 1 and 2. He tells us about the people in verses 3 and through 5. And now in verse 6, he speaks directly to God. And this is his prayer. And here's what he says. Break their teeth in their mouth, O God. Break out the fangs of the young lions, O oh Lord. And this is known as an imprecatory prayer. And that's a prayer where you ask God to harm somebody. And there are several imprecatory prayers in the Bible. And this is one of them. David will not destroy King Saul or Abner. But he asked God to do it. And notice how he changes the metaphor. He changes it from serpents to lions. Say. So, So he says to God in verse 6, break out their teeth. Well, that's where the lion, you know, he has his teeth and is ferocious. If you, you know, just strip the lion of his teeth. He doesn't have any teeth in his mouth. You've seen what a toothless lion looks like in cartoons. He loses his power. Break the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. And that simply means defang them, make them helpless uh, so they cannot destroy me. Lord, you take revenge against them. You know, I'm trusting you to do it. And so that's David's prayer. He places it all in God's hands. And then he says, and let them. Do you see that in verse 7? We're going to see three let thems. These are, in a sense, commands that David makes to God. And here's what he tells God to do. Look in verse 7. Let them, number one. Let them flow away as rivers which run continually. what a picture. You have water rushing down the riverbank. And guess what? Here it comes, and oh, there it goes. It just disappears. Make them disappear. Get rid of them like water that starts here and starts rushing down, and it's gone. Get them out of my sight. Get rid of these people. That's the first let them. Now look at the second let them in verse 7. And when he... Bends his bow, let his arrows be as cut in pieces. When I oh want, Lord, when they aim their arrows at me, and we don't know whether the arrows necessarily are the lies or whether they are literal arrows, probably both. He says, shred those arrows to pieces, make them like straw, splinter the arrows so they don't hit their target. So let's imagine you had an arrow, and you pulled it out, and you looked at it, and it was. 12 or 14 different little pieces to it. That wouldn't go anywhere. You'd never hit your target. And so he says, Lord, render their attacks against me as ineffective. Okay, that makes pretty good sense. And now look at the next let them in verse 8. Let them be like a snail that melts away as it goes. Now this speaks of a snail that comes out of its shell. Now you have the slimy snail that has come out of its shell and it starts crawling on the ground and the slime from the snail or the moisture, it leaves this slimy trail or moisture behind it, right off of its slimy body. And the ancients believed that all this moisture would finally come off the snail and it would dry up and die. He said, I want them to be like a snail that gets out of its shell, no longer protected, and it ends up dying. That's what I want these people gone. That's what he's basically saying. And he gives some illustrations of what he means by these let them. So he says, like a stillborn child of a woman that may not see the sun. Now what he's describing here in graphic terms is simply a baby that is born... uh, Dead. It never has an op- How? Look, it never lives. It's not alive at all. It never sees the sun. Uh, it's born dead. And so notice these illustrations. They're talking about disappearance and death. And he says, that's what I want them, Lord. Don't even give them the strength to do anything against me. Let them be like a dead person before it is even Born. Born. And then he says this in verse 9. Another illustration. Uh, before your pots... This is another illustration. Before your pots can feel the burning thorns, he shall take them away as with the whirlwind. How fast is it going to happen? It's going to happen faster than your pot heats up. You get a bunch of rubble and you stick it outside, you know you're cooking outside in those days, and you had to put all this rubble in this... Kindling wood under it. And you light it up before the pot even gets hot. Send them away. Know what he says? Something like that. Before the pot gets hot. That's what he's saying. He shall take them away. Notice, he's going to get rid of them. As with a whirlwind. Be like a tornado coming through the neighborhood. And guess what? One minute everything's intact. And next minute everything's gone. That, That quick. That's how swift he wants God to judge his enemies. Get rid of them. Wow, it's sort of interesting, isn't it? He shall take them away as a whirlwind. Look at this. As, right at the end of verse 9. As in his living and burning wrath. So, he's asking God's wrath to fall upon these people. He's asking God to judge these people. Judge them quickly. Judge them swiftly. Judge them so fast that they don't know what to do. That's David's prayer. This is an impregatory prayer. Now we have the aftermath. Look at verse 10. When all that happens, here's what David says. Here's the aftermath. The righteous shall rejoice when he sees the vengeance. It'll be a great celebration when he sees God taking vengeance upon the people. It's going to be relieved, and David will be relieved when when God finally gets rid of Saul and David's enemies. And then notice another aftermath in verse 10. He shall wash his feet in the blood of the wicked. The righteous will wash his feet in the blood of the wicked. Well, this is a description of a soldier, or a general, going through the battlefield. And after he's just won the battle, all the people are lying there bleeding. And he's walking through the battlefield because he's the victor. And David says, that's what I want, Lord. I want these people totally destroyed. And uh, when I walk through, they'll all be dead or gone or disappeared and you know when that happens I'll know that we have the victory. It'll be because you took vengeance upon the people. So, David anticipates that and he says we will rejoice when that happens. And all of that is for a purpose. Here's why David wants God to answer this prayer and judge these people. Look at the purpose. Verse 11. So that. Here's the reason why I'm asking it. To this end. So that men will say. Surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely he is a God who judges the earth. Notice that. There is a positive result. People will say surely there is a reward for the righteous. That would be Israel and King David. And then on the other side a negative. Surely he is a God who judges in the earth. Now, notice where he judges. He judges in the earth. Do you see that? He judges in the earth. If you look back at verse 2, about these wicked people, look where they weigh out their violence. They weigh out their violence with their hands where? In the earth, on the earth. Where does God judge? In the earth, on the earth. The same place that these people conceive and do their wicked things, that will be the same place that God mets out the judgment upon these people. He will judge these unjust judges who allow evil to reign. He will judge Abner who allows, says nothing and allows evil to reign. Notice those words of certainty there in verse 11. Surely, look at that. Surely... There is a reward for the righteous. Look at this. Surely he is a God who judges in the earth. You can count on it. You can bank on it. You never have to worry. You have two choices. You can take things into your own hands and try to solve the solutions yourself. You never know what the outcome is. When you try to take God's place and instead of allowing him, his vengeance to come forth, you seek revenge yourself you're never certain what the outcome will be. It may backfire on you. If you use the tactics of the enemy and you start lying about them and passing rumors and gossiping about them, you'll never know what the outcome will be. But if you put it in God's hands, this is the great thing. Certainly there's a reward for the righteous. Certainly He is a God who judges in the earth. You can count on it. God will not forsake the righteous. He will not forsake you. He's not, if you put your life in his hands, you will not have to fend for yourself. This is one of the hardest lessons that Christians need to learn. It's a hard one for me. All God requires of us is to trust It's so hard for us to do it. And then when he comes through to rejoice and praise him, because when we trust him and we rejoice and praise him, then all the world realizes that he rewards the righteous and judges the unrighteous. And even when it seemed like the unrighteous are going to prevail, and David was on the run for a long time, and it looked like the unrighteous were going to prevail, there they will come. It looked like the unrighteous were going to prevail against Jesus, and they threw him on a cross, which was like putting him in the the electric chair today. And it looked like the unrighteous prevailed. But did it? No. There is a judgment day. Three days later, God raised Jesus from the dead. The righteousness prevailed. And one day, all unrighteousness will be judged. Even if they seem to prevail over you in your life, during your life here on earth, that's not the end of the story. The end of the story is, is a final judgment. And in the end, the righteous will be rewarded, and the others will be judged. There will be a punishment for the evil, and the righteous will be vindicated. And in the end, justice will be done. The hard part is for us putting it into practice in our daily lives. Next week we'll take up at Psalm 59, which says this. Look at that superscription., Amit tam, a, a midtam or reflection of David when Saul sent his men, And they watched the house in order to kill David. And that's what we'll pick up next week. Lord, we thank you for uh, your song. Help us to be people who not only say we believe the word, help us to be people that not only say we believe it has no errors and it's fully inspired, but help us to be people who apply the word to our lives. Help us not just to be people who say we believe. Help us to be people who do the work. Help us to put our beliefs into actions and practice the Christianity that we've been taught here in your scripture. In Christ's name, amen.